It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And that is how Charles Dickens's novel, A Tale of Two Cities, famously begins. And I read that simply because the title of my talk today is A Tale of Two Cities. We read Romans 13, this section of Paul's letter to the Church of Christ in Rome. There's one city, the city of Rome, which represents the world that we live in, political authority. But that's the first city. The second city is the heavenly city, Jerusalem, as it were, or Zion, as it's often called in the Old Testament. The city of God, where he dwells. And I call this talk A Tale of Two Cities because Romans 13, yes, it talks about how we relate to those in authority of us, over us. For the Romans, it was the Roman Empire. For us, well, it's the EU at the moment and obviously Westminster as well. But then it talks in Romans 13 also about how we should live as citizens of heaven how we should live as members of God's family, how we should behave. There was a famous, I feel like I have to mention one of the church fathers because Richard usually does, so it seems the right thing to do, to carry on the tradition. Um, and I'm going to mention an African theologian in the 4th century, I believe, called Augustine. And he wrote... Probably his most famous work was called Civitas Dei, which means the city of God. And he compared the city of God and the city of man. I think also of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And it's a story of Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian he's called, um, from the city of destruction to the celestial city or the heavenly city. And as I read that passage, I, I don't know what you were thinking, whether you were thinking about your Sunday lunch coming up or whatever, but um, maybe it's a fairly familiar passage and, and maybe it didn't really strike you in any particular way. But it struck me as I was preparing this talk that it covers actually some quite controversial ground, very controversial ground. If you think about us as British people culturally, um, they say, don't they, that we, in, in polite company, you don't talk about politics, religion or sex. And all those subjects are here in Romans 13. So that's, that's controversial for a start. But another way of looking at this passage, which is going to make me look like a flight attendant, or a kind of weird flight attendant, um, is upwards... Verses 1 to 7 are about how we'd relate to those in authority. Outwards, because verses 8 to 10 are about how we relate to those around us. 
And then inwards, because verses 11 to 14 are about how we, as individuals, are spiritually. So first of all, we look upwards, we think of political things in verses 1 to 7. And I really want to zoom in on verse 5. You know, I know it says God put the authorities there, there's a lot in there. But I want to zoom in on verse 5, which says, It is necessary to submit to the authorities. And I think that is controversial, because we don't like that word, submission. We don't like to submit. If you think um, maybe of submission as something weak, um, allowing yourself to get trampled over, it's not the most popular of words, of concepts. Think of kind of someone domineering, just trampling all over you and you're just giving up your rights and you're just shrugging your shoulders and saying, I'm, I'm not going to stand up for myself. So submission is, is not popular in the world and even in the church, to be honest. But I want to give the most perfect example of submission and that is, that is within God himself. Um, last week, Richard was talking about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And within the Trinity, we see submission. It's God is perfect, and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, submits to God the Father. And they are equal, but one submits to the other. Um, the perfect example is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus is betrayed. And he prays, doesn't he? And he says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup, this cup of your wrath, of your anger at sin. Please take this cup away from me. But he goes on to say, yet not as I will, but your will be done. And that is the perfect example of submission. We think too maybe of a child submitting to their father and perhaps more controversially a woman submitting to a husband. But if you look at Ephesians 5 which talks about wives submitting to their husbands in the very previous verse it says to everyone submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submission is not just for the little people not just for children, women, poor subjects of the authorities, the powers that be. It's for every believer in Christ. We're all submitting to someone higher, ultimately to God. And we say, your will be done. But coming back to Romans 13, submission in this context could be quite difficult because it's saying, submit to the authorities. Now, if you think of who Paul was writing to in Rome, the Christians, and the context they were in, in the Roman Empire, that would have been very difficult to submit to those authorities. If you think of what Richard was saying the other week about who Peter was writing to in Turkey, which was in the Roman Empire at the time, and they were suffering, the Christians. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. I think... Romans was written before the letters that Peter wrote, so it wasn't quite as bad at the time. But nonetheless, 
what Paul is asking of the Roman Christians is controversial. Things submit to the authorities. And you say, well, what if the authorities say you've got to worship Caesar? What if you know that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar? What do you do then? Well, submission to God is unequivocal. It's There's no exceptions. You've always got to do it. But any other kind of submission, a child to the father, a wife to the husband, a subject to the authorities, there are exceptions. So obviously if um, a father is being, exasperating their child, frustrating them and being nasty to them, the child is perfectly within their rights to stand up for themselves. I think we have this caricature of submission as allowing yourself to get trampled on and being very passive. But that's not what the Bible says about submission. You look at Jesus with his father, he's sweating drops of blood, he's finding it hard, but he does it. And he questions God, he, he prays to him, he says, I'd, I'd rather not do this, but I'd rather, above all things, to do your will, God. And within submission, there is place for questioning and sometimes in human submission to one another, sometimes we have to say, no, actually, I'm not going to submit to you in that because that is wrong, that is not biblical. And a very famous example, a very famous quote is from a German Christian during Nazi Germany and... He was called Martin Niemöller, probably pronouncing his name wrong. But he was a pastor and he was imprisoned for his faith. And for seven years, I think, he survived. But he, he had a famous quote. He said, well, first the Nazis came for political opponents and I didn't speak out. And then they started coming for the Jews and I didn't speak out and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak up for me and there's definitely definitely a principle in the Bible of speaking up for those who cannot speak up for themselves for the voiceless and this is where we come to the difference between the city of man and the city of God because the city of man might is right it's survival of the fittest but in the city of god there's different rules at play and this is what takes us to the next section we're looking outwards now we're looking thinking about religion really but true religion the religion that comes from god and in summary it is to love our neighbors now i know we sometimes say i've said it um, religion is about rules, Christianity is about a relationship with God, and, and that is kind of true, but I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a place for rules. If you think of the city of man, the earthly kingdoms, you know, most of the rules there are sensible. You know, the rules for speeding, that we're not meant to speed, that's sensible because... 
we need to keep the roads safe, and so on. And it's the same in the city of God, there are rules. And Paul says, if you love others, that is fulfilling the law, that is what it's all about. So he gives some examples, doesn't he? He says, you shall not commit adultery. And what does Jesus say? He sets the bar even higher. He says, if you even look lustfully, with lustful intent, at a woman or a man, then it's as though you've committed adultery with them in your heart. And it says, you shall not murder. But Jesus says, I tell you, even if you hate someone in your heart, it's as though you've murdered them. You shall not steal, yes, but you shall not covet either. You sh it's not just about literally stealing someone's car. It's about coveting their car as well. Wanting something that's not yours. But Paul sums it up quite nicely. He says, love your neighbour as yourself. And you might say, well, Robert, you said this talk was going to be controversial and love isn't very controversial. That's something everyone can get on board with, surely. You know, we should all love. Love is love. All you need is love. But there is a controversial aspect to biblical love because it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain of the city of man. This rule that defines the city of God. It says love does no harm to a neighbour, and there's a sense in which that is the epitome of what our modern society says. It says, do whatever you feel like, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. But the problem is, a lot of the things we do, which we'll come on to in the next section, they may not harm others, but they harm ourselves individually. And another thing I want to emphasise is that I know Richard said an aspect of love is acceptance, but another aspect of love is almost rejection. Let me explain that. So if you love someone wholeheartedly, you're going to accept them wholeheartedly. And that's how God is with us as his people, as Christians, part of the city of God. God loves us wholeheartedly, he accepts us, he washes away our sins, he is totally happy with us. But love doesn't accept what is unlovely. So if someone says, well, I feel like committing adultery, well, love says, no, no, don't do that. That's not good. I'm not accepting that. If you think of a father, and I think this is a helpful illustration, we think of law as something very dry. We think of the city of man with his driving laws and all this kind of stuff. It's all very dry and boring and restrictive. But when the Bible talks about law in terms of God's law, it's much more in the sense of a father laying down the law, as it were, to his children. He's saying, no, don't run out into the road, don't play in the road. Eat your greens, brush your teeth, all this kind of stuff. And the law of God is, is like a father teaching his children how they should live. It's for our good. And obviously if a child decides to 
take his father's inheritance and run away and squander his father's inheritance in wild living, his father might let him go, but he's he's not going to accept that kind of behaviour. He might still accept the person, but he he might not accept what that person does. So we finally bring it in to verses 11 to 14. And this is where we really look inwards. We take the word of God, as it were, as a mirror. And we look at ourselves and we say, how do I measure up to God's standard? And Paul is basically saying in verse 11, wakey, wakey. Maybe I need to say that at this point. Wakey, wakey. Um, because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. You might say, well, I thought I was saved the moment I prayed for Christ to come into my heart. Yeah, but salvation doesn't come to full fruition until the day that Christ returns and calls us home, or unless we die first and go to be with Christ. So there's this kind of now and not yet sense. So at the moment, it's a tale of two cities. In the end, the city of man will be destroyed and the city of God will be all that remains. And thankfully, we're saved from the city of destruction and we're in the celestial city, the heavenly city, through faith in Christ, who has saved us by his blood. So the night is nearly over, Paul says, the day is almost here. You might say, well, come on. 2,000 years have passed and, and the day is still not here that Christ has returned. But, as Peter said in his one of his letters, he said, with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So God's not slow in keeping his promise. He will come, and I'm sure it's sooner now than it was back then. And Paul says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Now I understand that the children were learning about the armour of God in Sunday school the other week. And I'm sure they could tell us a lot about it. But if you want to read Ephesians 6, there it is, the armour of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And bear in mind, in this passage, Paul is saying, put off the deeds of darkness, put on the armour of light. But in Ephesians 6, it's very much about God providing the armour of light. It's not that we have to make up our own armour. We have to become blacksmiths and just build our own suit of armour. It's that God provides it for us. And it's also a picture of us giving up civilian life and becoming soldiers of Christ in a metaphorical sense, in a illustrative sense. It's not a literal sense, obviously. So, you know, if we're soldiers for Christ, we're disciplined, we're living, working, marching, fighting for him. We're no longer the baddies 
we've become the goodies. And then these final verses, 13 and 14. You remember I mentioned earlier briefly, Augustine, the African theologian, and he was a pastor. Well, he wasn't always that way. He wasn't born a theologian or a pastor. He was actually, as a young man, your typical young man, just like young men today in Teesside. Um, in these verses, you know, his life was defined by carousing, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension and jealousy. And before you think I'm just some self-righteous hypocrite or some holier-than-thou person talking about all this, let me tell you what happened to Augustine. He read these verses. What happened was he was very depressed living this lifestyle. And one day he went into his garden and he heard a child's voice saying tola legge, which is Latin, which was his language. And it means pick it up and read. And his mother was a Christian and she must have left a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans just lying around. Augustine picked it up, opened it at random, and he read these verses, verses 13 and 14. And this is what he says in his autobiography, which is called Confessions. Um, at the point he read those verses, it's in quite old language because it's an old translation from the Latin that I've got. Augustine said, no further would I read, nor was there cause why I should. For instantly, with the end of this sentence, as by a clear and constant light, infused into my heart, the darkness of all former doubts was driven away. So we close as we began. Um, Charles Dickens opens the tale of two cities by saying, it was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It sounds contradictory, light and darkness at the same time. But in his tale of two cities, he's describing light and darkness coexisting and and so it is in the world today so it was in augustine's day but if you're in the darkness today you can come into the light and the light is christ he is the light of the world and you can put aside the darkness of any doubts that you may have you can put aside the deeds of darkness all these things carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. And you can put on the armour of light, you can clothe yourself in Christ, you can be bathed in the sunlight of his favour, his acceptance, his love. So, if you don't belong to Jesus, I pray and I urge you to come to him. And if you are one of Christ's followers, then don't forget who you are. Yes, we live in the world, we're in the city of man, in a sense. But we're also on pilgrimage, we're strangers and exiles in this world. And we're heading to the heavenly city. We're already part of it, really. But we're heading to our heavenly home. So, be encouraged, persevere, love your neighbour, 
obey the authorities insofar as your conscience allows you and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Amen.